I try to work within the system. I think there's two types of people. There's activists and we need them. We need them for revolutionary change. Um, and their work is critical to moving the, the platform. We also need people who work within the system to try to change the system, to understand how the system works and then create fundamental changes within. Um, and there's a tension, there's a tension I, that's the other thing that keeps me up at night, is actually the tension, which side of that line am I gonna sit on? Um, when am I gonna finally decide to be a revolutionary? I, you know, like, uh, time is ticking. Uh, but I think we all have to stand up for what we think is right. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Nocturnists. Hey there, Visible Voices listeners. I'm Emily Silverman, a doctor in San Francisco and creator and host of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast where healthcare workers share stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. Monica Lipson. Monica L. Lipson, MD, MHPE, is currently the Vice Dean for Education at Columbia's College of Physicians and Surgeons. She's a professor of medicine there in the medical school. Previously, she held leadership positions at George Washington University and at the University of Michigan. Now, Monica and I are friends, and we had two stages of training where we overlapped, first in Providence, then in Boston. Monica graduated from Brown University, then medical school at Case Western, then internal medicine residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She went on to complete a Robert Wood Johnson at the University of Chicago, a master's in health professions education at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and currently she's a part of the Aspen Health Innovator Program, which is a part of the Aspen Institute. Hashtag leadership. Monica and I talk about a lot of things, mostly Monica and her leadership. But when we start the conversation, we're speaking about the VA. That's the Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Let's get to the conversation. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the VA system and from your perspective, why it actually works. Um, I'm a fan. So the two largest integrated healthcare systems in the country are Kaiser Permanente and the VA healthcare system. Um, and when we say true integrated healthcare systems, that means that they have, um, in both cases, a lump sum payment and they're in charge of all of your healthcare. And so the benefit of that is they are, in some ways, truly interested in the whole person because, again, it's more cost effective that way. The veterans, uh, uh, the veterans Administration actually has three bodies. There's the cemeteries, there's the Veterans Benefit Administration, and then there's the Veteran Health Administration. That's what we mostly all think about when we think about the VA, but it does have these other two parts. Um, I was a medical student trained in the system. I was a health staff or a resident in that system and a faculty member. 
it was a pleasure to serve those who have served and to really provide them state-of-the-art health care. And I saw the transformation of the VA that started in the late 80s and early 90s where they, Ken Kaiser said, we are going to focus on value and we want to de- develop and deliver the best care possible to our veterans. And actually, the outcomes for the VA rival Kaiser. So, and in fact, you might argue their outcomes are better because we know in the Kaiser healthcare system, all of those patients, for the most part, are employed because of the way our healthcare system works, their employee based insurance. In the VA, those veterans eligible to participate in the VA healthcare system actually aren't of means. We think they are, but they often are dual eligible, both Medicaid and Medicare. So the VA has said, I have a fixed sum of money that comes from Congress every year, and how can I best use that money? And so there had been lots of efforts to not only deliver state-of-the-art health care based on best practices and clinical guidelines, but also really trying to understand how the social determinants of health really do impact and can save a dollar on the healthcare side. So the whole strategy to house first, to make sure our veterans are housed and not experiencing homelessness, it was really an impact on improving their health care um, to ensure that there's wraparound services, that there is occupational and vocational rehab available to veterans so that we can give them the skills to be back useful members of societies if they've been injured or ill, they understand that that actually makes for a better whole life and and system. And so those are the things that actually have worked and serve as models. The secret that no one talks about is that many countries with capitated or a national healthcare system come and look at the VA and come look at the VA to see what those best practices are. So I am... I have always been proud. Uh, I've missed taking care of veterans in my day-to-day world. Uh, And it's a delight uh, to do that and really understand that the people who serve and protect our freedom deserve the best. Yeah. I had the opportunity. I was in med school in Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia VA was part of our medical campus. So I did two rotations, general surgery and psychiatry. And I also loved that that was one of my clinical uh, opportunities for rotations because a lot of students in training don't get that opportunity to um, see and work in a VA system. And one of the positives I have seen come out of the VA health system is the electronic health record that basically no matter where you go, no matter what VA, you can access those healthcare records in the country. Is that correct? So yes, so the VA had the first healthcare, it has the first electronic healthcare record, uh, CPRS. I think uh, many of our colleagues who still work in the VA are a little disappointed that they still have that healthcare record. Uh, It hasn't quite been modernized in the same way that others, but it really was the first. Um, It allows us to have one VA. Um, and of course, with all things that large, it has glitches, it has issues, but it really stood as the model for what an electronic medical record could be and should be. 
One of the things, I'll be honest, that did bother me when I was in med school with these rotations and sort of, you know, the word on the street among medical students was if you wanted to practice, if you wanted to learn, if you wanted more freedom with patient care, rotate at the VA. And um, it was not a, it didn't feel good. It wasn't positive um, because it, it felt that these trusting, unknowing patients uh, are not getting the same standard of care that was happening at the fee-for-service private hospital. Uh, so I think there are two parts of your question, and all of them rest at the foot of faculty. Um, one is those who are most vulnerable in our society actually deserve the best of us, not the worst of us. Yes. I think that uh, is... A statement, and there are probably, and that is true if we're talking about our public health care system, um, safety net hospitals, VA hospitals, etc. On the other hand, I was often captured when I was working there and heard from the students, and they said, Well, they're not getting state of the art health care. Actually, the veterans were getting evidence based health care. So, as over treatment, happens in our other healthcare systems, we don't actually see that to the same extent. Um, one of the things that had always enticed me about working in the BA is it's a, I'm gonna put great in quotes, it's a great place to look at healthcare disparities because access or the ability to access the system is not at play. So when we start to look at the racial differences in healthcare, black, white, uh, in the case of the VA, because that's where most of the data was in terms of veterans, you could actually see that there were healthcare disparities and you had a system that you could actually intervene and try to understand. So at the Pennsylvania VA, some of the greatest work had been done looking at knee replacements. And it wasn't just that surgeons weren't offering, it was veterans weren't accepting. And so the intervention was really about education of the veteran and education of the surgeon to really try to improve and putting checklists in, all kinds of things to address disparity. So that's that one piece about your question about um, the experience and the responsibility as the faculty. We should not be experimenting and each person has the right to refuse our training. I think on the flip side, veterans enjoy having trainees. Uh, I think the reason you and I both work at academic medical centers is because our trainees make our health, make our medicine better because they're constantly questioning us. They're looking for best practices. So that's one piece of the conversation. The other piece of the conversation, if you look at the mission of the VA, it is to train for the VA and for the nation. That is actually part of the mission of the Veterans Health Administration. It is actually was set up as a training because when GIs came back from World War II, there weren't enough physicians. And so the reason why most VA healthcare systems are happen to be located a couple of blocks away across the street attached to the academic medical center was purposeful. It was really about ensuring that our veterans actually got the best of our academic 
uh, healthcare systems. Um, and those relationships are good and bad and change over time, but that was the original intent of Memorandum 2. I love that. I want to shine the focus on you. You, you, you. Dean, professor, national leader, Aspen Institute. Yeah, <laughs> my mother likes those things. <laughs> I, you know, um, I appreciate that. I appreciate the titles, but I actually think the work is really what I enjoy and sort of what has propelled me over time, trying to make our medical system better for those who are currently training and to prepare do- doctors for the future for what our patients need. You recently uh, wrote uh, an opinion piece uh, as a response to an article about attrition in medical school. And who leaves? So uh, I did that work with Christina Gonzalez, who is at uh, NYU. And it was a paper from our colleagues at Yale. And it was fascinating when you look at not many medical students leave medical school. So it's so hard to get in once they're in, you know, we have very high rates of uh, completion of the degree. But those who leave tend to be those of marginalized background, black, brown, indigenous, Latinx, Hispanic, and other marginalized identities are the people who leave. And we need to understand that. And I think more research needs to be done on why that happens. Yeah. You are a subject matter expert in medical education, um, both uh, graduate medical education as well as undergraduate medical education. So, you know, what have you seen in a positive note change over time? And what has been disappointing to you that really there hasn't been much change or movement over time? I think the focus on medicine that actually the patient is first, that really we need to provide patient-centered care. And now we talk about it. I think we've always talked about it. We actually didn't change our system to do anything about it. And I think that over time has really changed. And we really have started to focus on quality and outcomes, et cetera. Um, I think the diversity, the focus on what kind of workforce our patients need is now clear in most of our mission, missions and visions about how do we think about healthcare of the future. Um, disappointing is those numbers have not really changed. Now, Representative diversity is only one aspect. It is not the full picture of when you want to think about workforce diversity, workforce equity, etc. However, representative diversity does help you get to those other places. And so if we look at the statistics on black or African-American men, for instance, there were just as many black or African-American men in medical school now as it was in the late 70s. What is it? What is it about our system that that is A, acceptable, and B, hasn't really changed over time? Why are we still have a huge deficit of indigenous students um, knowing the health care issues of our native peoples in this country and elsewhere? 
representative diversity. I'm wondering if you can explain that concept a little bit more. Representative diversity is pretty easy. It's sort of looking at what the population is of the country or the area that you're focused on and then looking at the workforce and seeing how that matches up um, and trying to understand why there might be gaps in that. Um, The bad part of representative diversity is you start to say, well, do I need a quota system? Do I need to sort of think about that? No, but I do think you need to be open to the patients you take care of, are the people in the hospital look like them? Do they feel like they have a bond with what's happening in your facilities? Um, because their people are there that they can identify, that help them make a appropriate plan that is patient-centered. Um, I think those, and then is the diversity that's there amongst the class and the healthcare workers there to help educate their peers, to help them sort of embolden their own education and experience. One thing I think is that it's great to have these performative measures, but not unless it translates into true action and true intention. Right. That's why you now focus on inclusion and belonging, because it's one thing to have people there, but if they still don't feel part of that system that we all need them to help fix that we talked about earlier, then they're really not that effector arm that you were looking for. You're not going to get the diversity bonus that Scott Page talks about. Where do you see the role of HBCUs and the formation of some medical schools? (laughs) Uh, So um, I think in my bio, you know, I went to Brown University. Um, In my family, I'm the oddball, right? So my sister went to Florida A&M in in Tallahassee, Florida, and then to Howard Law School. My husband is a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta. Um, So I was surrounded as a kid that HBCUs are the places, the historically black colleges and universities are the places where black leaders come from. Um, So my whole conception of the value of those institutions, I think, is very different than my peers in the Ivy Leagues. Um, And they are an important piece of who graduates the most doctorates, who who is ensuring that STEM pipeline, who is really participating and ensuring that blacks in particular, though they tend to be diverse, HBCUs are diverse in in their student population on multiple metrics, um, have really an equal opportunity. They They have access to opportunity, which is really key. The flip side in terms of growing, one of the best things that I do is I sit on the Dean's Advisory Committee for Charles Drew um, in um, California, and it is the first black uh, and Hispanic-serving institution west of the Mississippi that has um, the ability to go forth to create their own medical school. I think this is going to be a game changer for the citizens of Southern uh, um, South L.A., Right, um, they are committed to improving the healthcare of the people in South LA, uh, and based on a legacy that actually had existed for 
almost 80 years if you think back to the civil rights movement. A lot of people say, you know, when you get to a place of leadership uh, at the top, it can be lonely. It is, uh, you realize, you know, it's actually interesting. Um, I'm lucky that I'm not at the top because I can actually see that actually being at the very top actually is more lonely. Um, I'm one of several vice deans. Um, but you realize that when you have problems or you're struggling through an issue, you don't have many people to commiserate with in the same way that you might have at, at, at different levels within an organization um, or that it's safe to have those types of conversations. I, I think that's something that all leaders sort of struggle with when you think about it. Um, and I've sort of always purposely tried to create that network so it's not so lonely. Um, but there are fewer and fewer people that you get to talk to. And being in a dual physician marriage? Um, I, it's, uh, it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, right? So marriage is the hardest thing I, I've, I've ever done. Um, you know, you figure your kids, at some point, they kind of do what you say. They might stress you out but they eventually <laughs> sort of do what you say uh work you can choose to work one place or another a marriage you actually have to compromise with another adult right you actually have to sort of to work you really have to put uh equal effort into it and then i have to say we're in two academic um careers we all we have interests we want both of us to succeed in those careers and sometimes that happens at different times different places and what does that mean um i hope that i'm a good role model for those who are also in dual career marriages about sort of how do you make it work um, but i also don't want people to think that it's easy and as a source though of support for you with your ascension to leadership? Oh, yeah. I, I think we talk about it all the time. I mean, I don't think I could have taken this job as vice dean at Columbia without the support of my spouse. I mean, at some point I was like, I'm not moving to New York City. You know, we, we have a perfectly lovely life here in the DMV. And he said, how could you not take this job? So once we sort of said, oh, I said, oh, that's possible. Then we had to really figure out <laughs> How you how are you going to make that work and then prioritize the relationship? Um, I think when we were in Michigan, I think we were in Michigan for a long time, and I think at some point we both realized we had sort of made the best of our time in Ann Arbor, and we needed to leave. It was five or six years between the time I, we made the decision and we actually left, because remember you got to find i.e. ideally the perfect jobs for two people, not just one. Mm -hmm. And so that takes time, that takes compromise, and I can tell you there's things I did well and there's things I did not do so well in that whole intervening period. The audience was wondering, because you said DMV, like does Monica live in the Department of Motor Vehicles? D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Yeah, you know, we learned so many acronyms <laughs> or we have our short term for everything. So, you know, as a leader, what keeps you up at night? I'm in charge um, of the MD program, and what keeps me up is making sure that our learners are in an environment where they can learn. And I know that sounds, I'm not worried about 
the medicine. I'm not worried what you can learn in a book or the journal articles or even the research. I'm concerned about are we creating environments such that they feel like they can thrive. They feel safe to ask questions. They feel like they are supported in a way that will make them great physicians or scientists in the future. That's what keeps me up at night. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the data is pretty clear that from the sociologist that there's no such things as generational differences. It's actually kind of interesting when you look at the sociology literature. However, we all talk about these generational differences, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the generational differences. I think we're in a place where different percentages of different um, aspects of our learners and faculty have different priorities in our environment right now. And we have to figure out how to move forward. And the reason I say it, there is a lot of credence to the fact that there's no generational differences. Um, you know, I'm a proud Gen X, and if you've watched the memes lately, I was the latchkey kid who cooked at, you know, 10 and, you know, was out and about. But my value of work-life balance is probably the same as the current generation's value of work-life balance. I think the current learners are saying, this is unfair and intolerable. And they were right. They actually are right. It's just that we put up with the crap. Um, And I think they value what's important. I mean, they value that in order to provide the best patient care, I've got to take care of myself. We know that data. The data, the, they actually, the science actually bears out their perspective. Yeah, I want to end by asking you. You know, when did you realize you had a voice, and when did you start using that voice? Um, I'm fortunate or unfortunate enough to grow up in a family where I had a voice. Uh, I also uh, an argument. the The ability to argue within the lines was safe in my house, right? You, um, my parents were school teachers. They were very insistent that I learn how to take care of myself, to be able to defend myself, but also to do that in a way where people actually might change their mind and they might actually see value in my perspective. Um, And so I've been doing this sort of my whole life. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, I've had the chance to go back to my high school or other and they're like, oh, she's been the same. Uh, I think that's a compliment. Um, I try to work within the system. I think there's two types of people. There's activists and we need them. We need them for revolutionary change um, and their work is critical to moving the the platform. We also need people who work within the system to try to change the system to understand how the system works and then create fundamental changes within. Um, and there's a tension. There's a tension I, that's the other thing that keeps me up at night is actually the tension. Which side of that line am I going to sit on? Um, 
when am I going to finally decide to be a revolutionary? I, you know, like uh, time is ticking. Uh, but I think we all have to stand up for what we think is right. The Risa Wrap-Up. I'll start by thanking Monica. Monica, thank you so much for joining me in person in New York City for this great, inspiring, authentic, fun conversation. Three things I learned from Monica. Number one, the VA system. Relatively speaking, it's patient-centered, it's evidence-based, and it works. Number two, leadership. Leadership can be difficult, and Monica has chosen a path that I respect, that I think is the way to leadership. Communication, authenticity, and transparency. Number three, every leader sort of struggles with what you need to do to be a part of the system to get to a point of being able to change that system with actually speaking out, using one's voice outside the system to push for change, to push for being authentic and true to oneself. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.